sometimes you find that um, the whole meeting is... Can anybody hear me? No. Just give it a second and we'll sort that out. But sometimes it feels as if um, all the themes that have happened in the meeting, in prayer, in passion, um, please from the platform or from what's happened in the worship suddenly all tie in together and it feels very much for me this morning that almost I'm bringing together themes that have already been mentioned um, one of the things that struck me when we were singing come Lord Jesus come I must admit one day could be soon could be this morning can you imagine it happens during the Sunday morning meeting? And suddenly the Lord comes. And we sing, come Lord Jesus, come. And it happens. Ooh. Praise God. It's going to happen. We can't come to Revelation without realizing again the fact that it's coming. <clears throat> Because the book of Revelation is given to outline to us what lies in our future. But it also speaks in the first three chapters very much about the state of the church. Now, I don't want to go into whether or not this applies to every church. We know they're written to specific churches. And that's the way I'm going to tackle it. I'm not going to get into the other side of things. We could develop, but we won't. So I, I want to talk a little bit about Ephesus to start with, because it's one of those churches we know a lot about. It's good when we, when we, when we come to understand that. Ancient Ephesus was at the center of travel and commerce. It's on the uh, Turkish sea, um, seafront, if you like, um, on the Aegean Sea, on the mouth of the Castor River, and one of the ancient seaports, uh, uh, the greatest seaports of the ancient world. There's three roads that lead from there. There's a major road that eventually heads its way via Laodicea out towards Babylon. There's another to the north towards Smyrna and there is to the south to the Meander Valley and we find that Paul's second missionary journey around about 52 AD he visits Ephesus after leaving Corinth and he evidently planted a church there what I find quite exciting is that when I started doing some research I thought I wonder how big these churches are other sort of mega churches other churches that are just located in houses. And when I started looking up, I found whether this is accurate or not, but, but there's some serious people doing a lot of work on it. And they suggest they're probably about the same size church as us. I don't know why, but I felt that was quite interesting. I suppose one of the reasons is it makes me feel, I wonder if Christ was to write a letter to us today and instead of starting with to the church at Ephesus we started with the to the church of new life Teesside I wonder what God would put his finger on I wonder what he'd say to us I wonder what he'd praise 
because he praises the church for things, but then he also has some very hard things to say too. I wonder how receptive we would be to it. We're going to look at what happened to the church at Ephesus. He goes back there because when he first happens at, the, at Ephesus, he, he, he doesn't have time to spend there. So he promises he'll come back again. And when he does come back later, he stays for two to three years. It's a classic outreach to the Gentiles. You know, sometimes Paul gets to a church and he goes to the synagogue and it looks like the main actions happen with the Jews. Yeah? But this is a classic outreach to the Gentiles, the ordinary folks who lived there at that time. He spends his time addressing false doctrines and pagan practices. He teaches, he rents out the school of Tyrannus, who was a philosopher, and he hires his building, and he starts his meetings there. And it's so successful that those who practice magic brought their books and burned them as an act of repentance. I've only ever seen that happen once, and we were down at Millfield Church, and we belonged there, and a girl got converted, saved, and turned out she was a witch. And, and she brought all of her books and all of her paraphernalia and everything and burnt them and was completely liberated. Wonderful. But of course, when things like that happen, it has an impact, doesn't it? So during his uh, stay in, in, in Ephesus, he probably wrote 1 Corinthians. But around about him, the sale of silver idolatrous images started to fall off. And the silversmiths caused an uproar. And there was riots. And there was persecution. And there were Christians beaten. And Paul gets out of Ephesus. Several months later, he meets the Ephesus elders on the nearby island of Miletus. We can read all of this between, uh, in the book of Acts. And Luke records their conversation, and it's evident that the people who are there have a great deal of maturity in their faith. It looks like a carefully nurtured church that is a strong church. When Paul is there. About an ec a decade later, Paul writes the letter to the Ephesians, commending their faith and love, but on a careful reading of the letter, we start to see that some of them appear to be, oh Lord, devout in the faith and, and well organized and busy. There is some possibility of some errors about to creep in. We know that in Ephesus it speaks about the fact that there are different ethnicities and nationalities come together to form one new man and one body. A diverse church, and that's great. And he, Paul commends their sincerity in the final sentence of his letter. He says, grace be to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. But in Paul's letter to Timothy, we start to see this evidence of doctrinal drift because Timothy is at Ephesus. In 1 Timothy 1, 3 to 4, it says, As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, that you might instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines 
or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to speculation rather than further in the administration of God which is by faith. And these are the days before YouTube. Even a good church has to be on guard. Because people will come in with strange ideas. What is it? What is it that makes us want to go beyond the bounds of Scripture into the odd stuff? Why does it have such an appeal? But it seems to. Tradition says that Ephesus also became the home of the Apostle John. In fact, you know, it's recorded by the early church fathers that John, uh, in the mid-60s, um, may even have taken Mary, the mother of Jesus, there to live. John writes three letters from there. And now we come, of course, to Revelation. And the church had apparently had some difficult problems. False teachers had arisen. And now we find the letter that's addressed to them. I think one of the things that struck me very much, I thank God for godly heritage and their past. I thank God for the, the good people that God brought in for the founding of this church. Yes? But how interesting, even with people like Paul and John the Apostle and Timothy, we can end up with such a cautionary letter from Christ that he says, repent, remember, and repeat the first works. And if you don't, you will be gone. Paul, John, Timothy, such great pillars of the church. And yet within a few years, they are in danger of being gone. Well, if there's something for us to take away this morning, it's this. We must fiercely contend for truth and the faith. We must not let strange doctrines enter into our fellowship. We must guard it fiercely. He compliments them on their good works. But he rebukes them, as you know, for losing or leaving their first love. But I want you to remember the three words that we've just said. Repent, remember, and repeat. Can we do that? Are you ready? Repent, remember, and repeat. And let's repeat the first works. Okay, good, 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 good. So Revelation 2, let me read to you. I suppose before I do, I should mention something. This church appears to have died out not too long after the receipt of this letter. It does, centuries later, become a leading city. But at this time, this church appears to have failed. Can we all take that to heart? Because we committed here, aren't we? That this work should thrive. But it can only thrive as a church if you thrive individually 
before God. We are the sum total of individuals. And every time one person goes off the rails or leaves, it weakens the whole body. Remember that. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you can't bear those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Yay! That's good. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. Yay! But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. And if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you, this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So there's a great promise there as well. Put things right, and what a blessing will come. We'll talk about that as we go through. Now, it starts off with the angel of the church in Ephesus, or to the angel of the church. So I'm going to have to bounce into chapter 1, and I'm going to read to the end of chapter 1. So what, what John sees in a vision, he sees this figure in between seven golden lampstands, someone who appeared to be the son of man, wearing a robe that reached down to his feet, a gold cloth around his chest. His head and hair were as white as wool as snow. His eyes looked like flames of fire. His feet were glowing like bronze heated in a furnace. His voice sounded like the roar of a waterfall. And he held seven stars in his right hand. And a sharp double-edged sword was coming from his mouth. His face was shining as bright as the sun at noonday. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead person. But he put his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last, the living one. I died, but now I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death and the world of the dead. Write what you've seen and what is and what will happen after those things. I will explain the mystery of the seven stars that you saw at my right hand. And the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Wow. I can't even picture this. Can you picture this? Did you try as we were reading through? Did the sort of imagery, you know, parts of it, yeah. But what, what an awesome thing it is. And what a job John's got. Because he's told to write what he sees. Yes? Now, if you are told to write what you see, it's not easy, is it? 
Imagine that you've got this incredible vision in front of you and you're writing down. And I'm going to suggest that one of the things that John does is automatically ties some of this into very well-known Old Testament prophecies. Right? So what he's going to do, he's going to create a weave in his descriptions of things that the people of the time would have really got and understood. We're going to touch on some of them, not a lot, but some of them. And then again, it's, it's strange, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his hand. So Jesus is the origin of this message, and Jesus is also identified with God. And then in verse 7 it says, He was an ear, let him hear what the Spirit has sent to churches. Hang on. The word appears to be coming from God the Father, and it appears to be coming from Jesus himself, but also from the Spirit. Can you see what John's doing? He's tying together all three of those things in the personage of Christ. If you want to see an expression of Trinity, you find it here. Because we find God, we find the Son, and we find the Holy Spirit. Each, you know, what, what, who's saying it? All of them are saying it together, if you like. It, it goes further, because if you, if you go back to the book of Daniel, in Daniel 7 we have the vision of the Ancient of Days, the Father. And then we have the imagery of the Son in the clouds going to be presented before the Father. Well, in Daniel 7, who's got the white hair? Who's got the burning eyes? Who's got... That imagery belongs to the Father, but now it's transferred to the Son in Jesus. And I tell you, if you go through this slowly, I recommend that this when we do studies, you know, don't go through this fast. Go through a few words at a time, and suddenly you'll start to see all sorts of connections being brought together. So is it the Spirit? Is it Jesus or God? The answer is yes. The seven spirits or stars are identified with the seven churches, but the angels of the seven churches. Now, that's a funny one, isn't it? I'm not the sort of person that likes to skate over the difficult bits because I think the difficult bits tend to be important. Now, I'm going to say something to you, and I might be shouted down, and I accept that. And what I'm going to say is a personal interpretation. I'll make the case for it. But if you don't agree, don't feel you have to. Is that all right? What's the relationship between the angels and the churches? The lampstands are the churches, but the stars are the angels of the churches. And the letter is addressed to who? To the angel of the church. Okay. The word angel means messenger. So we, we, we could have two possibilities. Is he speaking to the pastor of the church? Is he speaking to a human? Or is there a relationship in the angelic realm with the church? It's one of those two, isn't it? 
I could give you lots of reasons why it doesn't work as speaking to a person. And I can give you lots of evidence that suggests that there is a relationship. We know there are such things as guardian angels. Is that right? Come on. Fingers on buzzers. You have a think. Can you, can you think of any time that Jesus mentions guardian angels? Gosh, you're going to be busy when you get home. Your Yorkshire pudding's going to go soggy in the gravy while you look these things up. We know that the guardian angels look over children. Yes? Check it out. But also, in ancient Israel, although Israel was the Lord's portion, he was the God over Israel, and yet, although they are his, he also appointed an angel, a spiritual entity called Michael, to be the prince appointed in the spiritual realm over Israel. And we find that in Daniel. We find it in other Old Testament passages. I find it strange that John would use this language without meaning what he says. And one of the reasons for that is when you, when you look at this, you'll find that everywhere else, 77 times in Revelation, the word angel is used. And for 72 times... It means a spiritual entity. The only seven times that might not are the angels to the churches. Yahweh's property. Yes. But it doesn't mean to say there isn't within the plan and purpose of God. I'm going to give you a, something important that happened in the Old Testament. But along the way, I'll just point out a couple of things. Um, you might want, if you read in chapter 1 before we get into the letters, because the letters doesn't really look back at chapter 1. But have a look at Zechariah and have a look at um, the, the way that it talks about the, the angels, uh, or sort of the, the eyes of God looking um, and because again, that sort of feeds into all, all this. Um, I can't see this being applicable to a human being. But remember this. He says, repent, do the works you did at first. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. I thought we had a karaoke going on. The one thing is clear. Whatever that entity is, there is a relationship between that and the church. Can I take you back to Judges 2? If you remember when in the Old Testament they came to the promised land, they were told to come in and take the land. Agreed? And what's more, God said he would fight for them. In fact, it says the captain of the host was with them and fought for them in all their battles. But then we come to Judges 2. The Lord's angel went from Gilgal to Bochum 
and gave the Israelites the message from the Lord. Are you listening to the message? I promised your ancestors that I would give you this land to their families. I brought the people here from Egypt. We made an agreement that I promised never to break. And you promised not to make any peace treaties with the other nations who lived in the land. Besides that, you agreed to tear down the altars where they sacrificed to idols. Why haven't you kept your promise? And so, I'll stop helping you defeat your enemies. Instead, they will be there to trap you into worshiping idols. And the Israelites cried loudly, and they offered sacrifices from the Lord. And from then on, they called the place crying or bokim. The angel of the Lord was withdrawn from the children of Israel. All the battles that they entered into, they would win. But once they compromised, the angel of the Lord said, right, that's it, I'm off. Essentially, God withdrew the captain of the host over Israel. And at that point in time, they failed. Why did they fail? They didn't stick to their mission of what they'd been called to. The job was over. Later on we read at Silo where the temple was um, under Eli, the, the tabernacle, if you like, the tent had been installed. And we read about the disgraceful things that happened under Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And eventually there was a child born and they called the child Ichabod. And Ichabod means the glory has departed. And at that point the Lord was never again to be there at Shiloh. When people don't do what they're called to do, Ichabod can be written not just down on a birth certificate that can be written above the doorposts of the church you see let's be fair we've seen this over and over again haven't we how many denominations could we walk into now where you do not feel the spirit of God is present I'm not trying to be harsh and you'll notice they never preach the gospel they might preach the social gospel they might preach liberate and theology. They might preach little mini encouragements and self-help parables. But when you don't do what you're called to do, Ichabod is carved on the doorpost. And we've seen whole denominations fail. Is that right? Here they're being threatened, the lampstand will be taken away unless they remember and repent and repeat the things they did at first. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. You've abandoned the love. We could go into Jeremiah, we could go into Ezekiel, and there's lots of passages that talk about the love of God for his bride Israel. But of course we know what Israel does. Okay, bear with me. I'm being dramatic again. 
If your partner's here, have a look at them, please. Go on, look at, the, look at them fully in the eyes. And I want you to remember the first time you saw them. Oh, keep looking. Don't chicken out. The first time you saw them. And the first moment when you fell in love. Bless. Some of you are scared I'm being soppy. It's a strange thing, this, because... How shall I put it? There is something wonderful, wonderful about first love. Yeah. I've got to say I'm also a fan of long-term love. Seriously. And I love my bonnie lass as much as I ever have. Seriously. I love it to bits. I look at her when she's asleep. And I think, wow. There is something about... How shall I put it? There is something about long-term love which is equally wonderful, but it's not quite the same as first love. You see, they are praised for so many things. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. You can't bear with those who are evil. They haven't switched sides. This church has not been disloyal. It's fought passionately for truth. But friends, fighting passionately for truth isn't enough. It's essential because if you let untruth into the church, it will ruin the church. But it's not enough. You've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. There's a lot of that today. There's so many want to claim the name apostle. You know why? If they say they're an apostle, they say they've got authority over other churches. Take over bids. Yeah? Nonsense. Nonsense. Not swayed by false teaching. And I know you endure patiently and bear up for my namesake and not grown weary. Friends, this is the church where Christians were dragged out and beaten. This is the church where they faced opposition from the silversmiths. This is the place where they were opposed by witchcraft and and the whole upset the whole economy of, of the town. It was tough being a Christian in Ephesus. And I don't think it ever got any easier. But guess what? They bore with it. They stuck to their guns. They continued and did what they were called to do. Ish. But not fully. They haven't buckled under the threat of unbelief. Or opposition. So what's the problem? What's the failing? You see, I'm going to suggest something that was prayed earlier by Paul here. 
I'm going to link this failure of first love into another verse in another book, a book that John would have known well, because this is written long after Matthew's written his gospel. Matthew 24, and because of lawlessness will be increased and the love of many will grow cold. Have you got that? But the one who endures to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. I'm going to suggest there is a strong link that Matthew identifies that clearly applies to this church at Ephesus. You see, let's just consider the good things, fighting for truth, Standing firm against persecution. Yes? Not barren people who come in, but they've lost their first love. Hang on. What do we mean? Do we mean that they didn't feel fuzzy in the stomachs anymore? Can you remember when you used to feel your knees used to wobble? You've fallen in love. Oh, God's not speaking out to them, saying, you need to get the wobble back. He's not saying, get the butterflies back in your stomach. Why? Because that's just emotion. God wants something more than emotion from you. What does he want? How, how, can, we, how can we figure this out? Well, hang on. Jesus tells us what it means to love him. In John 14, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And what is the great commandment that is given to the church? Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Got it? That is the great commission. And I think it's the litmus test of whether they were failing. Why? And I can imagine this scenario. And I think it's a very human one that I understand very well. Maybe you know somebody who's been beaten up by those silversmiths. Maybe you've been beaten by the silversmiths. Maybe you've been called names. Maybe you've tried to witness to people and they've just pulled their little witchcrafty things out and waved them in front of you. What's the temptation? The temptation is to say, ha, they'll get what's coming. Yeah? The temptation is to turn around and say, they don't deserve the gospel. The temptation is to not care. But Jesus said, do good to those who despitefully use you. He said, love your enemies as yourself. It may be, it may be that they didn't feel as passionate about Christ as they used to. And that's a great sadness. But it also may be that they just got into a mindset because of their circumstances where they just stopped caring 
about winning souls. Stopped going into their world and preaching the gospel because of all the things that were against them. Whatever it was, the threat was that they would have their star taken away, their lampstand taken away. And history tells us that that's probably exactly what happened. Luke said, got to make sure that we don't just talk stuff. We've got to make sure we apply it to us here this morning. Absolutely right. We get so caught up sometimes, don't we, in all the people who are against us, we stop loving them. We stop realizing that Christ died for them. We almost say, you're going to hell in a basket. No, what are the expression? Hang basket? What an odd... So, so what? Handcart. You're going to hell in a handcart. I still don't get it really, thinking about it, but... Like a wheelbarrow. Yeah, I still don't get it. Um, but it's easy not to love people who... The gender is so confused, they're so in turmoil. And we think, oh, good grief. It's easy not to love those who live lifestyles that the Bible doesn't approve of and shouldn't approve of. But there are people for whom Christ died. We don't water down our standard. And that's the important thing. We have to defend truth. Yes? But we don't just have to defend truth. We have to keep loving the lost. Do the works you did at first. At first, Paul's there. They're in the streets. They're preaching the gospel. It's so effective that people are bringing their witchcraft books and paraphernalia and burning them. I think Ephesus hadn't seen those days for a long time. Where do you stand before God this morning? You might say you believe, and I'll say that's wonderful. You might say you're barren with persecution, and I'll say that's terrific. You might say, I'm determined not to be conned by all those fake apostles out there. And I'll say, that's terrific. That's absolutely wonderful. But if you don't have a passion for Christ, if you don't have a passion for Christ, do you realize how dangerous that is? If you can't commit yourself to preaching the gospel to those who are against you. If you're not willing to reach those people who you've got no natural affinity for, but you see them as souls for whom Christ died. If you're not prepared to do that, how are we being obedient to him? Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep 
my commands. If we're not keeping his commands, it doesn't matter what you believed, you're not being loyal to him. We're here to expand the kingdom of God, not to win an argument and not to be comfortable. The mandate is given to us, and it's why we are here on earth. Let me just say one other thing. I was trying to look at things that I didn't quite understand, and one of them was in Revelation 21, where cowardice was determined as one of the things that would send people to hell. Read the list. Revelation 21, verse 8. And I can't help but be reminded where Jesus says, if you own me before men, I will own you before the Father. But if you won't own me before men, I will deny you before the Father. Friends, there are going to be many on the day of judgment who've got every reason they're going to present to God of why they should receive their eternal reward with him. But I pray this morning that the Holy Spirit would move over us and speak to our hearts and point out those things that we know are our failures. And we stop trying to be defensive, but instead we own our errors. We own what we're doing wrong. And we pour it right before God come into the breaking of bread how can we take this bread and wine unless we commit again to be passionate about Jesus unless we commit again not just to be passionate but to be obedient yes our sins are forgiven I'm, I'm shocked this morning that Ephesus had so many things right and yet their lampstand taken away I don't know how long I've got left. I'm clicking on in years. The fact that there's a few ahead of us doesn't make any difference. I'm starting to go to funerals, not of uh, me mum and dad's generation. I'm starting to go to funerals of people who were pals, friends. I don't know how long I've got. It doesn't matter. I'm going home to be with Christ. But I tell you this. This church will look radically different in 10 years' time to what it is now. And it will either be a failed church or a church that's put its foundations right, that listens what the Word of God is saying to us and is going out and winning the lost and bringing them back. I said at the beginning, I wonder what Christ would write in his letter to us. If you listen to your heart and you listen to the depth of your failure, I think you could write the letter that he would write to you. May God bless you.